Psalm 11. Um, the Psalms, especially these early Psalms, are very much a reflection of David's heart, suffering, difficult times. Psalm 11 um, is a, a short psalm. I don't know, it might not take us too long to get through it tonight. Uh, but it is a psalm that uh, will be very, um, relevant um, to, to our time. As always, we'll read the whole psalm together, then we'll talk through it. Psalm 11, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked shall he, he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone in a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. We see a, a somewhat, part, uh, somewhat important or a familiar verse would be the word in verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's one that's often used among missionaries in particular, talking about the nature of the gospel, evangelists, the gospel, and, and such. Um, but it's interesting because as we read through it, um, the, it's actually the one who's saying to David things that David then refutes that those people that are talking to him, they're the ones that say, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David will actually refute that concept in this psalm. So we, it, it's somewhat misused in that sense as it relates to the context, but let's talk through it together. So it's the psalm of David to the chief musician. Remember when we look through these psalms, um, and, and this is an important thing to remember, the, the introductions are in the Hebrew. They are a part of inspired scripture. If you have titles in your Bible, you'll see those titles and it might say uh, something, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't have a Bible with titles, but uh, it'll, it'll, it'll give you some sort of title as to what the psalm is talking about, and you'll see that it'll be in a different font, smaller font or a larger font, a different, uh, um, a different actual font, not just larger or smaller. But then the, to the chief musician, a, song of, a psalm of David should be in the same font as the text. And that's because it is actually in the Hebrew. So it's a part of the inspired scripture that we have these, um, these introductions here. Uh, and so this is not a major introduction. We don't have the mictums or any of those sorts of things. Uh, it's simply it, telling us that David wrote the psalm, and it is a song, right? It was handed over to the chief musician to be sung. And it's a psalm of resolution in the face of danger. Now, the danger that we're speaking of here, there are two primary um, theories as to when it was. When, when there's the idea here, um, David is asking to some group of people, and we know it's a group because he says, how say ye, right? And anytime we see ye, yours, we know that it is second person plural in our King James Bibles, and if it were second person singular, it would be thee, thine, or thou. And so our King James Bibles do a wonderful job 
of letting us know whether or not what's happening behind the text, whether or not it's a singular or a plural pronoun by using either thee, thou, thine, or you, your, ye. And so we have you, your, ye here, which means he's talking to a group of people. And this group of people, um, we'll go ahead and go to the first verse and then we can talk about it. Uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, in the Lord put I my trust, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. So we have this, this, David is asking these people, why are you telling me to flee? My trust is in the Lord. Um, as you think through the times in your life where David fled, he fled from Saul. He fled from Absalom. Can we think of another time where David either fled or was getting to the point where he might be compelled to, fl to, to, to flee? And I ask you because as I thought of it, I, I didn't think of any others, but I may have missed one. Nathaniel? Yeah, when, he, when he's before um, in Gath, uh, when he's before Ach Achish, was that his name? King of Gath. And uh, he, he flees from Saul to there, and he was hoping for uh, a measure of um, uh, protection, and instead the king thought, oh, maybe I can use him uh, for you know, ransom or whatever it might be, and then he, he feigns madness, and he, he's able to get out of there. So we, we, might, we might be able to include that one, although I don't know if he had anyone with him that would be calling him to flee in that instance. Yeah, I don't know that he had his mighty men with him yet. Um, and it may, uh, yeah, but, but possibly. Any other, any other thoughts here? And that was my, my thought too. So if we, if we put our minds to these two, um, we'll, we'll see in just a moment, David does flee to the mountains <laughs> when, when he goes from Saul. So it seems more likely to me as we walk through the context that this is when he is fleeing from Absalom. Um, and we'll, we'll perhaps see that a little bit more as we walk through. So David is, is painting a contrast here between him fleeing as a bird to your mountain and putting his trust in the Lord. Notice it's your mountain, so it's the people that are telling him to flee. And they're saying, we have a place for you to flee. Come to our mountain. Um, we don't exactly know what that was, but it likely refers to the wilderness stronghold. Do you recall um, that Israel was full in the south of these wilderness strongholds? This one happens to be Masada, which of course is the most well-known of those, right? Uh, Masada was where uh, the last vestige of the Israelis held out before the Roman Empire and uh, when the Roman Empire decided to finally do, d destroy them, 70 AD and following, um, and the freedom fighters hold themselves up in Masada and Rome literally built a mountain um, to, to root them out of there. By the time Rome got in there, they'd all, um, they'd all taken their own lives and uh, out, of, out, of, out of nationalistic zeal, right? Um, and it is not, not um, insignificant that the IDF swears in their soldiers at Masada um, as far as the mindset of the Jewish people as it relates to their homeland. 
So we see in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14, And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph and saw Sodom every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. So David, in the days of Saul, when he was fleeing from Saul, did run to the mountains. He was specifically in mountain strongholds. Uh, many of the Psalms that David speaks of where he talks about God being his, his rock and his, his stronghold um, are likely allusions back to that time where he was running from Saul, hiding in caves, uh, going from stronghold to stronghold in the, that mountainous region. And so, once again, lends itself to the idea that if he is resisting the call to flee to their mountain, then it's probably not in the days of Saul, although it could be. And, and the, the, the thrust of the psalm does not depend on it one way or another. Uh, are there any... Um, are there any questions about the logistics of that? I mean, it's not, not really here nor there as it relates to the, the message of the psalm. The message of the psalm, the, the, of the beginning here, is a contrast, right? Even if David did end up fleeing to that mountain, what he's doing in this moment... He's saying, you're telling me to run, but my trust is not going to be in mountain strongholds or fortresses. My trust is going to be in the Lord. And that's the question. The point is not the literal history. Where was this? When was this? The point is a perspective. In whom is your trust? Who protects you? Who builds the house? What is the solution to danger? What is the solution to evil? This is the perspective. This is the call. This is the, the contrast that David is painting. He's, he's setting a theme here, right? He's contrasting the Lord being his help, the Lord being his trust, or this mountain, which would probably be a, a stronghold of the south. This is the perspective of the believer as it relates to dangers, troubles, trials, and tribulations, as opposed to the perspective of the man, right? The, the, the unbeliever or the man who is thinking on a, just a physical plane. How do we solve the problem? Do we turn to the Lord or do we turn to man? And not just do we, do we end up in that mountain stronghold, because maybe the Lord would take David there. But the question is, where does David flee? Does he flee to the Lord or does he flee to man's solution? What is his protection? What is our protection in this life? Is it money and insurance and um, safety nets and um, uh, connections and all of these things? I'm not saying any of those things in and of themselves are wrong. But what I'm saying is, where is our trust in times of trouble? Is it our impulse to flee to the Lord, or is it our impulse to flee to our own devices, the things that man can erect and create in order to preserve himself? And that's the contrast that's being painted here. Thoughts on this? Okay, so David makes this statement, in the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul? So now he's asking a question to this group of people that are talking to him. 
Flee as a bird to your mountain. Come, David, come flee to our stronghold in this time of trouble. And then these people are still talking here. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is still they talking. This is still ye. This is still the group of people. This is their reasoning for calling David to flee. David, flee to our mountain because the wicked are coming after you and they're looking for the upright in heart. And they don't want the upright in heart to be harmed. They don't want David to be harmed. David, you're righteous here. You're upright in heart here. Come flee so that they can't harm you. You don't want them to win. You don't want them to overcome. David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So David's advisors, per perhaps, I guess we don't know who the ye is there, but some, whoever it is that's advising David, may, they may not be his advisors, capital A, but they are those that are advising him. They say flee for two reasons. First, the enemy's tactics are that of subversion. Notice the word privily. The enemy is working in the background. They're doing this privately. Maybe, maybe someone came up to David and said, David, we've heard a rumor. We know what they're doing. We've got intel on them. This is what they're doing. You've got to run. You've got to run to the mountain. Once again, a good reason to think that maybe this is Absalom. Because Absalom staged a coup, right? And David really got out of there with the skin of his teeth, right? I mean, he barely got out of there before Absalom came in. And then, but he didn't flee to the mountains, right? He fled over the river. And then had Ahithophel's counsel been listened to, David would have been dead. And it seems as though, from this next phrase, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? That the enemy is also within his own government. And the idea there, the foundations are destroyed. Basically, they're saying this, David, you can't fight this. The, the system is corrupt. The whole system is corrupt. We don't know who to trust. The fruit of the poison tree, everyone, everyone is, is poisoned here. We don't know who's good. We don't know who's bad. What can the righteous do when we don't even know who to trust? What can the righteous do when everybody is so corrupt that the foundations are destroyed. It's not as if we can just clean house here because we don't even know where to start. Ahithophel's gone. Absalom's gone. Joab's gone. We don't know who else is on his side. What can the righteous do if the foundations be destroyed? This is them reasoning with David as to why he needs to run, why he needs to flee to their mountain. But David began saying, in the Lord I will put my trust. I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. Now, um, this is, I mean, this is kind of where we are, right? We're, 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 we're sitting in a nation and we say, the foundations are destroyed. We don't know what's going on anymore. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who's, who wants what. The systems have failed. The checks and balances have failed. Congress is a vestigial organ of our government. We don't know what, what to trust, who to trust. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do in a situation such as that? 
But David has already given his answer. I'm not going to trust in the devices of men to defend myself. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to lean upon the Lord. That is his statement in response to these men who are calling him to flee to their mountain, run to the stronghold, defend yourself. He says, and, and, and take note, if, if this is Absalom, he did end up fleeing, didn't he? He didn't, he didn't flee to the strongholds in the south. But he did end up fleeing. But his initial response was not, what is my solution? His response was, I will trust in the Lord. This is so important, isn't it? This is so important for our day. What is our initial reaction when we see the foundations destroyed? Is it like his advisors? What can the righteous do? We, we, we've got nothing. So I'm righteous, they're not, but the foundations are destroyed. So run, so fight, so hide, so, 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 so uh, have a backup plan. Have your safety nets. Put everything in place so that, so that when, when everything goes bad, you can perhaps preserve. Well, none of that in and of itself is wrong, but where is your trust? And as I ask that question, where is your trust, how, how, how do you think we can know? Because none of these things are bad, it's not bad to be prepared. It's not bad to have a backup plan per se. So how can you know where your trust is? How can you know if, if your trust is in the right place, not in the things of man or in your preparations, your plans, your, your, your considerations, but your trust is in the Lord? What do you think? Nathaniel? So if you are perhaps either, either if the plans are gone, if they, if they failed, right, the backups failed, or maybe if they're not quite where they ought to be in, in level of preparation, what else? Robin? Other thoughts? Kimberly? Hmm. Being at peace? Sam?
God's hands and not not waiting till our plan A, B, and C fall apart before we cry out to God, but to remember that whether it's through you know my insurance company or whether it's through a doctor or whatever, that it's ultimately God that that heals, that restores, that preserves, and it's mm-hmm. not the not the safety nets. Yep. Other thoughts? Nothing else. Any other thoughts? So there were two common threads through this, and they're the two threads I would agree with. The first is, where's your emotional state? Your, your heart, your mind, your anxieties, your concerns, peace. The second is, what's your reaction? Who, uh, to whom do you run, right? Is it real? Is God real? Right? Is he real to you? Is, are his promises real to you? Uh, do you believe it? Do you believe that the Lord is your strength and your shepherd and your shield and your provider? Or are you your strength, shield, or provider? Or is some safety net your strength, shield, or provider? What do you run to? Where is your peace? Are you not at peace unless you have the safety nets in place? There's probably something wrong if you can't sleep at night, if you don't have the safety nets in place. There's probably something wrong if you can't sleep at night because you're so worried about some element of life and limb, life, liberty, or property, really. It's not to say that these things aren't worrisome, but where does your hope and trust lie? And again, this doesn't mean that you're a, you're a terrible person, but... but but, or anything of the sort, if, if, you, if you get anxious over things, we all do. We all have our things that we struggle over that you can't sleep because of fill in the blank. This is, this is because we're human. But when we do see those things, we must recognize that there is a degree to which we are taking upon ourselves something that really ought to be the Lord's, right? If we're not experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding, then there's something I'm hanging on to and not yielding to the Lord, because Philippians tells us, be careful, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And again, that doesn't mean you're the worst Christian ever. It means you're human. But just because you are human doesn't mean you don't recognize when there is an area of your life that needs improvement. And so David says, I will put my trust in the Lord. Now, whatever came of that as far as his actions... We don't fully know. If it was Absalom, he still ended up fleeing. But either way, 
his trust was in the right place. His initial reaction, as Robin said, was the Lord. What does the Lord want me to do? And it wasn't third or fourth choice. It wasn't, I'm going to expend every, every option. I'm going I'm I'm to put the money into it first. And then after I put the money into it and that didn't work, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap every contact and resource I have. And after that doesn't work, then it's like, oh, I don't know what to do now. Okay, I'm going to pray. If you do that, again, you're human. It's going to happen. But when it does happen, you need to realize that the Lord was not your trust. The Lord was your last resort. And that's not where we want to be. We want the Lord to be our trust. So that in the hard times, in, the, in the, the scary times, in the difficult times, in the times where the foundations are destroyed, so that you don't know even where to turn or what to do, whether that be government, uh, as we're experiencing right now, or whether that be your own life, your bank account, whatever it might be. Do you then see things as hopeless, or do you recognize that the Lord is your trust, the Lord is your strength, the Lord is your solution. How real are God's promises to you when Jesus says in Matthew 6, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your clothing, what you shall put on. Does that, is, is that real to you? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Is that real to you? Or are you consumed with the safety nets and making sure that everything is, is, is in place and you've got all of your ducks in a row and that is the place where you find your rest and your peace. So that when those things change, when those things aren't in place, you're not in place. <laughs> and if so then, then you, you have things out of place. And this is a wonderful thing when we can recognize that the Lord is our hope and our stay and our trust. Because what it means is that, you know, apart from the human part of us, which is always going to have ebb and flow and emotion and, 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 and state and whatnot because we're, we're so terribly human. But we can always find our way quickly and easily if the Lord is our trust back to a place of peace. Doesn't always mean a place of happiness. Doesn't always mean a place where everything is working out in the physical, but a place of peace. And as we think of Christians all around the world who are in very difficult places, suffering tremendous injustices and sorrows and shame and fear and pain, and yet they have joy. It's not because they're enjoying their circumstances, but it's because they have full confidence in the God that, that they serve regardless of their circumstances. This is where David was. David was making a point here. The Lord is my trust. I have full confidence in Him, not in your mountain. The, the foundations have been destroyed. What can the righteous do? I don't know if the righteous can do anything, but I have a God who can do anything. So the foundations are destroyed. I don't know who to trust. But you know what? I'm going to trust the Lord because I can trust him. So verses 4 through 7. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. Okay, he, David doesn't know who to trust, but the Lord's still in the same place. He hasn't moved. He hasn't gone anywhere. The Lord's throne is in heaven, still there, and he's on it. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. God's watching, God knows. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. We see a, a contrast here. The Lord tries the righteous. That word there meaning to test the righteous. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The righteous will see hard days. The Bible has never promised the Christian life to be cherries and gumdrops, right? As a matter of fact, quite the opposite is what the Bible says to expect. The Bible has not promised us suffering, but marvel not, Jesus said, if the world hate you. So, tough days come upon the righteous when you take up your cross and you follow the Lord. Tough days are, are probably going to come. You're going to go through times where people are not going to like you, where you're going to have to stand up for what's right, and that's going to cost you. There are going to be times where people are going to find out what you believe, and it's going to cost you. There are going to be times where you have the opportunity to do something dishonest that would be greatly in your favor. Lie, cheat, steal, and you're not going to do it, and that's going to cost you. The Lord is going to try you. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Every plant, every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit, right? But far better to be under the trial of the Lord than under the judgment of the wicked. So, the wicked and him that loveth violence, the Lord's soul, his soul, hateth. What does the word hate mean in our Bible? <clears throat> when you see that word hate, what does it mean? Nathaniel. To esteem lower in value. It does not mean, as we think of the idea of hatred today, we, when we think of hatred, we think of an a emotional loathing toward, the incapacity to think well of someone. This is not the Lord. This is not what the Bible says about the Lord, even among the wicked. For God so loved the world, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves men. But, he does reject wickedness. And he esteems lower in value or favor those who are in a state of wickedness. He, re he, he rejects that. He will not place his love, his blessing, or his care, or his protection upon the wicked. They are not his children. They are not his. They have rejected him. He will make his son to rise upon the evil and the good. He will send rain upon the just and the unjust. He will send his son to die for them, to give them the opportunity to be brought into a right relationship with him. But he will not, he will not favor the wicked. Right? And so as it relates to these things, David says, yes, the foundations are destroyed. Yes, the wicked are coming. Yes, they have designs upon the righteous, upon the upright man. They are privily seeking the, 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 the idea of their bow being drawn, right? They are already on, in, in attack mode. They are coming after me. He says, but here's the thing. 
the, the, the righteous, David is a righteous man, those who stuck with him as righteous men could do nothing against the wickedness, but, but David had the ace up his sleeve. He had the one who controls all things, sitting on the throne in heaven, and he's not surprised, he's not taken aback, the, the wicked did not catch God off guard. And you know what? The circumstances of the last three months did not catch God off guard. Have, have, you, did, have, you, ever, have you been sitting in your house at any point and saying, wow, at this time last year, President Trump could not lose. GDP was like at 5%. We were, we were under a, pro, a, a time of prosperity unlike any we'd seen in generations. Unemployment was statistically zero. No way. And then this random, or not so random, this virus shows up, right? And everything collapses. The economy, which was the one thing that everybody could tolerate if, if they couldn't tolerate his rhetoric. The economy, going gangbusters, now gone. All of the optimism, now fear. All of the, the, the peace, now anger. Everyone's shut up in their homes, nowhere to go, nothing to do but think about themselves. And then one little match strikes all that dry tinder, and the country's up in flames. If 2020 hadn't happened, how different would the election have been, right? Did any of that catch God off guard? Uh-uh. Could he have stopped that? Could he have changed it? Uh-huh. He didn't. He didn't. The Lord still sits on his throne. He's still in the heavens. His eye is upon the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. He's angry at the wicked every day. God has not changed. Upon the wicked, he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That may not happen, as we've talked about it, today or tomorrow, right? We're not going to be you know, sitting here, and, and it's, it's very unlikely that all of a sudden fire and brimstone is going to fall on Washington, D.C., or upon the governor's mansion. But this is a forward-looking remembrance that evil may have their day, that the wicked may have its day, but they will be judged. None of it caught God off guard. And so, David says in verse 7, the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. So God is looking upon the righteous, and that has not changed either. It hasn't. We don't know all the ins and outs of God's choices. We don't know why God chooses what he chooses. But we can live in this blessed place of consistency and of confidence that God is still on his throne. And regardless of what wicked men do in wicked systems of wicked institutions that Satan has owned since the beginning, 
and always will until the day that Jesus topples them all. I'm going to keep my eyes on him. And so I'm not going to run to your mountain. The Lord is my trust. You say flee, advisors, not you, right? But David speaking here. You say flee to, my, to, to our mountain. I say the Lord is my trust. You say everything has fallen apart around us. I say God knows. You say the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? I say the righteous doesn't have to do anything because the God of the righteous is still on his throne. And so David expresses this confidence. And however, whenever it was that David experienced these things, he reflected in this where his trust lies. And, and I think, if anything, when we come to times like this in our society, and I've heard many of you say this over the past couple of weeks, so I know it's working. Times like this help us reevaluate what our trust is. Um, where does our trust lie? Has every vestige of peace, of tranquility, and of joy been stripped from you? Then your trust is not in the Lord. And that's not meaning that you're a terrible, awful, wicked person. It just means you're human. You've gotten your eyes off, right, like Peter, Took your eyes off the Lord amidst the raging, raging storm. You started to sink. You cry out to the Lord. He'll pull you up. But it is a reminder to refocus. Where's your focus? Are you focused on the right things? Where's your trust? Is your trust in the right place? Is it in your bank account? Is it in our government? Is it in your parents? Is it in your pastor? Um, if, if, it's, if it's in the things of man, not only will they fail you, but it will mean that you will live on the roller coaster of life. Ups and downs emotionally, ups and downs spiritually. You will be driven with the wind and tossed, a double-minded man, as James says it. But our call is that we be stable, that we don't be driven with the winds to and fro. And the only reason why we can do that is because we don't, we live in the world system. But we don't live for the world system. The world system does not define us. The world's reliabilities do not define us. I am not defined by the safety nets of our system. I'm not defined. My, my, my security in my home and in my possessions is not defined in whether or not I have insurance or my health, for that matter. It, that, that those insurance does not define my peace and my tranquility on these things. Whether I have it or not, the Lord is my provider. The Lord is my protector, right? This is, this is the idea. And that was David's confidence. Thoughts?
Any thoughts on that? Or anything else for that matter? Susanna. Amen. Yeah. When we start to sink, it's not a failure, it's a reminder. If we allow it to be so. If we keep sinking, <laughs> we refuse to turn our eyes back, it becomes a failure. Um, but when we, when we start down the wrong path, the Lord will lovingly call us back, and that's his faithfulness. You know, I often tell people as it relates to that, that uh, account of Peter, uh, Peter is often, um, we, pe- preachers throughout time have give, often given Peter a really hard time. He's always putting his foot in his mouth, get thee behind me, Satan, he sinks, all of these things. But never forget that, yeah, Peter began to sink, but he's also the only one that got out of the boat. Never forget that, yeah, Peter 
Jesus told Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. But he also said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not showed these things unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Only one that, Peter's the only one that got to hear that. Peter was impetuous. He put his foot in his mouth, but, but, but he also stepped. He's the one that took the steps. Um, if you take those steps, you're probably going to, the faster you run, the more it's going to hurt when you trip. But you're also the one that's running fastest. So um, don't, don't be too hard on Peter. Um, but yeah, th there, there is, um, the Lord is gentle. He's gracious. And don't, don't, don't see these times of, of faltering as times of great failure. When the Lord has shown you, he's shown you that you may get right. It will be a failure if you don't get right. If you don't humble yourself, if you don't realign when the Lord has shown it to you, it will become a failure. But when he shows it to you, if you humble yourself, that's exactly what, what, what God wants. Susanna. And it doesn't, and it's not always without pain. You know, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That word chasten is not just about punishing. That's about training, teaching. The Lord trains those he loves. The Lord prunes those that bear fruit. When you prune a tree, you're cutting off live stuff, not just dead stuff. You prune it back so it can grow healthier, right? And if, with, you know, with my daughters, Right now, Elia, we're, we're through some of the more painful stuff, but early on, she does tummy time. Now she can, she, you know, she can crawl around and whatnot. She doesn't need tummy time anymore. But the point of tummy time is this. When they're on their stomachs, if they want to see, and they do, they lift their neck. They have to lift their neck. And that is tiring. If you've ever laid on your stomach and brought your neck up, your neck gets tired really quickly. And then you push yourself up and you do this sort of a thing, those babies pushing, using those muscles, that hurts. It's tiring. And, and she can't undo it. She can't roll over yet when, when they're just that tiny. But we do it to help her grow, right? To, to, to build those muscles, the muscles necessary, develop those muscles so that they can start crawling, so that then they can, you know, and then once they're there, we're, we're, we're taking them and we're, we're, we're holding them up, but we're, we're making them, you know, stand so that they can, Learn to use those leg muscles a little bit. Get a little strength. Get a little balance. Always, daddy's always watching. Mostly always watching. But we are doing that for their best good. And 
God's the same way, right? He's going to push you out of the nest. He'll catch you. You're not going to splat. But it's for your best good that he push you. And that's the idea here of the Lord trieth the righteous. Now, we don't want to be in that place of wickedness because then comes cursing, right? Then comes the, the hard hand. But the righteous will go through trials. Expect it. So that we can remember where our trust lies. And this is, this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. Um, verses are not coming to me quickly this evening. I've, I've been patchwork on all of my quotations, so I will just uh, prompt myself here at the least. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most, rather, therefore, well, most gladly, therefore, excuse me, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul suffered some difficulties. And then Philippians 3, you know, talking about that I may know him. Paul suffered difficulties. But all of it he recognized as a means by which for God to draw him nearer. Keep, Dave, uh, keep Paul reliant upon God, lest he said, I be exalted because of the abundance of the revelations. Lest because of all that the Lord has blessed me with, I start to become proud in my own imagination. God is humbling me. And while it's not fun, it's the best thing he can do for me. He told me that himself. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'm going to keep you weak, God says, so that you continue to rely upon me. It is in Proverbs, right? That Solomon, perhaps it was Solomon. Seems like it probably wasn't Solomon based upon what he says here. But he says, Lord, don't let me be rich lest I, having all, deny thee. Don't let me be poor, lest I must steal for my daily bread and, and blaspheme your name. Give me that which is sufficient for me, right? Give me enough. Give me this day my daily bread. But if God gives me too many days of daily bread in a row, I may start to fool myself into thinking that I've provided for myself. How silly would that be? So maybe today is enough. To live in God's grace today. And we don't understand that in this country, right? Because we've got days of food in the fridge and days of food in the freezer and days of food at the food shelf and they're throwing away food faster than we can eat it. But that mindset should still be there. Thank you for this daily bread. God, you provided this for me today. God, I will rely upon you. In the Lord is my trust, not in the mountain, not in the fridge, not in the bank, not in the government, not in the insurance, the Lord. Good. Sam.
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a very good point. And it's interesting as well, he says, this shall be the portion of their cup. When we see this idea of the cup, it's often connected to God's wrath. And as it relates to man, other than Jesus, um, this is the, the, the picture of the cup is this is what they have poured themselves, and now they have to drink it. Um, that's the idea. Uh, they, are, they are pouring their own cup. Um, Jesus had one poured for him of all mankind, right? If this, let, not this, you know, let this cup pass from me, it was his prayer. Uh, and it was still the cup of God's wrath uh, that we poured out for him to drink. But on every other occasion, as we see this concept of the cup, which is a picture of God's wrath, um, not always. I mean, David says, my cup runneth over, right? But that's a different analogy, a different picture. Um, it's, you know, it's something that fills up. They poured themselves. Good. Any other final thoughts here? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.